Well, this morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew and also from the book of Ruth. So hear this from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And now from Ruth chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from, Eph- from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Verses 15 through 18. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And this is chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tommy, and uh, welcome everyone. I'm Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here, and uh, it should not go without saying a thank you for so many volunteers and staff that uh, stepped up last week when so many of us went down last week. And uh, just so we're clear, I did not have COVID. Uh, COVID had me. And the spawn of Satan body slammed me for several days, and it was terrible. And I'm so delighted to be back, and my voice is almost all the way back. Um, But before we get into this text, I need to start with a question because I know um, we have people online, we have people in our midst who are exploring Christian faith. Maybe you're you're brand new to the church, maybe you're back for the first time in a long time. And I want to ask the question, what is Advent? And there is a sense in which none of us knows, and there is a sense in which everyone knows. 
And this is what I mean. Uh, There's a sense in which none of us knows what Advent is because November the 1st, I went into Costco and all the Halloween decorations were already cleared out and there were twinkle lights and Christmas trees there November the 1st, okay? So no one knows what Advent is. Uh, The week before Thanksgiving, I happened to breeze through the Hallmark Channel and there's a Christmas movie on. The week before Thanksgiving. Uh, You know, it's the one about the career woman who's too busy for love, but she moves to a small town where this local bachelor teaches her about the spirit of the holiday, and there's snow, and they kiss, and there's a dog, like all the other movies, right? Christmas, 24-7 from November 1 to December 25. What is Advent? No one knows, right? But there's a sense in which also Everyone knows, and here's what I mean. Uh, Raise your hand if you have a pet. Does anyone have a pet? Okay, a lot of pets in the room, or a lot of people with pets in the room, I should say. Uh, Well, you know, when you get ready for that pet, whether it's like a bunny or a cat or a dog, you, you get everything ready. You get the kibbles and the bits, you get the crate, you get all the little toys. But what happens? You're ready, but you're not prepared. So when I was growing up, we got a golden retriever puppy, and we came home one day, and she had eaten the entire couch. We were ready for that puppy, but we were not prepared. Same is true for those of you who have had children, right? You get everything ready, right? You've got uh, uh, the diapers and not, not the crate, but the crib this time. You know, you got, you got everything in order, but are you really prepared? I remember it like it was yesterday, 25 years old. Um, we have our first child, and, you know, I, I, we're in the hospital, and we're getting ready to check out, and I go to get the car, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I spent a, a, I got a permit for this car. I spent a year learning how to drive this car. I got a license to drive this car, and I pull up, and they just hand us this baby, and I'm driving away with my wife, and I turn around, and I'm like, can you believe they're letting us do this? <laughs> like, like, we are ready, but we're not prepared. And there's a sense in which everyone knows what Advent is because we know what it's like to be ready but not prepared. So with the birth of Jesus, everyone was ready for the Messiah, but they were not prepared for the way that Jesus would come. And as we await the return of Jesus, some of us might say, we're ready, but are we prepared for an inception of a brand new world? So WCPC, we join churches historic and global to slow down a little bit, to dim the lights, to push some of the festivity back, and to prepare ourselves for the gravity of this moment. Think about it for a second. Christians believe that the God who created the cosmos becomes one of us. So did you know that Proxima Centauri, there's a picture of it behind me, is the nearest known star to our sun? It resides a little more than four light years away from our solar system, or as the crow flies, 24 trillion miles. So if you and me were to visit this star, we would go to SFO, we would hop on a plane, and it would take us five million years to get there. Christians believe that the God who created all of that magnificence and all of that brilliance became one of us right here on the third rock from the sun. And not only that, but the God who created the cosmos 
didn't show up with, with laser light shows and smoke machines, didn't have Instagram influencers throwing him a launch party, didn't even show up in the right family with a good substantial name, didn't show up with power or prestige or prominence or privilege, but instead on the wrong side of the tracks in a one stoplight town, born into a family tree with some really rough roots. Can I say, I wish I had an hour with you this morning. Some of you may not wish that, but uh, I'd love to spend an hour just geeking out on this genealogy in Matthew chapter one. It's amazing, and it seems like it would be so boring because Matthew begins with the begats. You know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But it's scintillating. The very first Greek words, biblios genesios, translated the book of Genesis. For Matthew, this is the true beginning. This family, these people who put the fun in dysfunction. Why? There, there are five women in this genealogy. If you were a Jewish here in the first century, you would have been going, what? And what is more, these women are not Jewish. You would have been going, double what? And what is more, the men in this genealogy, many of them, the heroes of the faith, are the villains in these stories. Triple what? So the teaching team landed here this Advent season because we wanted our church to know deep in her bones that Jesus turns outsiders into insiders. He turns nobodies into somebodies. With Jesus, there's no prominent nationality, ethnicity, gender, skin tone, eye color, stature, vocation, portfolio, educational credential. In fact, the only disqualification might be the assumption that you are an insider or that you are a somebody. Jesus did not show up in a family tree for rich people or for poor people, but for all people. And with this comes a summons as well, because today's story, Boaz and Ruth, also reminds us the redeeming work of God intensifies the agency and the responsibility that all of us have as we get to work living out of God's plans and God's purposes. For there are people in this room with power and privilege called to use it for good. And there are some people in this room with deeply broken histories who are summoned from the ashes to offer redemption as hope and salve for others in the world who may be on their margins. This is really the story of Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, this Moabite of the incestuous tribe of Lot for 10 generations. They were discarded by the Israelites. And Boaz, this very prominent, privileged Israelite man. So I have two simple desires today. One, I just want to retell this story. And two, I want this story to challenge the trajectory of your entire life. I'm swinging for the fences this morning. And I want to attach this, this life-altering desire with a couple questions I'll ask you at the very end. Uh, this book, Ruth, this beautiful book, very short book. You can read it this afternoon in just a few minutes. I, I tried to kind of telescope three of the important passages this morning that Tommy read to you, but I'll retell it here as well. And some of you would know back in the spring we had the privilege of hosting uh, Andy Crouch here who preached. And the next day I invited Andy 
to address a room full of church planters and church pastors here in the Bay Area. And he spent the morning in Ruth, which meant most of those preachers preached through the book of Ruth back in the spring because it was amazing. And uh, a lot of uh, what's noteworthy here, I would wholeheartedly attribute to Andy. But you first ask the question, how does this story begin? And it it begins with a cascade of catastrophe. If, If something could go wrong, it goes wrong. In the days when the judges ruled the land, in verse 1. So if you're into Lord of the Rings, it's like somewhere on the plains of Mordor. There's no king. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. This is a time of of moral disorder, of cultural confusion. There's There's a vacuum of sound leadership. Does any of this sound familiar? If you think the Bible is irrelevant, right there. It's like similar world, similar types of people. And so... There's this moment of great distress as there's this famine in the land and a man named Elimelech from Bethlehem, and we'll get there in a minute, he becomes an immigrant. He must leave his country, his language, his people. In our world, think Syria, think Afghanistan, think Ukraine. Immigrants and refugees, people without rights to citizenship, with cultural and linguistic barriers dependent upon the kindness of others. So, Elimelech and Naomi, they have these two boys who grew up in a, as bicultural immigrants, yet they've learned enough of the language to acquire these two Moabite women. So they're in these multicultural marriages. The two women speak different languages with different customs. And then Elimelech dies. And then after 10 years of eking out an existence, both of the boys die. So in verse 5, this woman, Naomi, is left without her two sons and without her husband. And I want to sit in this sorrow for just a moment. A a famine, a natural calamity followed by cascading catastrophes, all while living in a new country, in a new culture with new customs, no rights, few opportunities, nothing fits comfortably. They're scratching out a life together. And then the husband dies, and then both of the sons die. And we don't know, did they die at the same time? Was it an accident? Maybe they died months apart. We're not sure which would be worse. And now Naomi, whose name means pleasant, is a widow. There's so much that's that's devastating about becoming a widow or a widower in our cultural moment. We have many sitting right here in this room. Few of us knows what it is like to lose the other one in your life that brought you ballast and balance. And back then, being a widow would be even more difficult. Women had few protections and even fewer opportunities. It was a precarious moment for Naomi, who now calls herself Mara, which means bitter one. It's the bitter pain of a broken life. If something could go wrong, it's gone wrong. And and I want to hyperlink here for just a second Um, If this is you, this holiday season, loss mounting upon loss upon loss, I want to gently invite you to attend our Blue Christmas service this Friday night. We're doing it right here. Um, We're creating this service to allow you some space away from the holiday good cheer of the happiest season of them all to not count your blessings, but to name your losses. Uh, We've sought to make this service Godward with some hope attached to it, but with a hard-fought and grief-stricken hope. And we 
hope you'll come and invite others who may be in that season. But Naomi, she, she blesses her two daughters-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And by the way, Oprah Winfrey is named for Orpah. This is true. Her great aunt gave her this Bible name, but everyone in her family pronounced it incorrectly. So Oprah stuck, even though Orpah is on her birth certificate. So you get a misspelled name, and you get a misspelled name, right? But anyway, Naomi famously says in response, or Ruth famously says in response to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, Naomi, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So then as the page turns, Naomi and Ruth, they return to where? To Bethlehem, which sounds so promising this time of year, doesn't it? O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. No way. Not for Naomi, not for Ruth. Again, this story takes place in real time when judges ruled the land and there was this massive civil war and many of the Israelites were moving from town to town, warring and slaughtering and abducting and even raping women and children one town to the next. And Bethlehem is right in the middle of it and probably the most X-rated story in all of Scripture happens right here in Judges chapter 19, which is for another time. But the point here, this young immigrant woman, Ruth, with no spouse, no prospects, goes to Bethlehem. And we'd be saying, don't go there. Haven't you heard what happens there to people like you? So Naomi and Ruth, they, they show up at the city gate. They no longer have Elimelech's land. It would have been pledged to his creditors during the famine. So in order to get it back, it must be redeemed. So before that word like sprouts wings and flies away, before it was a religious term, that word redemption is a political term. It's an economic term. To redeem something or someone is to engage in an economic transaction that would purchase their freedom, that would liberate them from some form of indebtedness or bondage or enslavement. And it always comes with the sacrifice for the one who's doing the redeeming. It would involve losing something that matters. So who has the power to redeem in this story? Well, it's the next of kin. You may have heard it as the kinsman redeemer, or as it's translated here, the guardian redeemer. So Ruth is sent to glean in Boaz's field. Now Boaz, according to the law of the land, he's leaving the grain on the edges of the field so the poor could eat, but also that they would have dignity in doing some of the work. And Ruth joins these gleaners. And those who gleaned were the most vulnerable in society, including women with no male relationships in a deeply patriarchal culture. And with vulnerable women came exploitation. In fact, if you looked at other ancient Near Eastern sources, you would find that there are plenty of off-color jokes about what happens to gleaners at the edges of the field. But Boaz says, don't bother this vulnerable immigrant woman. Then Boaz and Ruth, they get to know one another and we think, whoa, something could really be happening here. And then the climax of this story takes place on the threshing floor. Now, if there were a lot of jokes about gleaning in the field, there were even more jokes about the threshing floor. Late at night, 
No one around, a perfect place for exploitation. When lots of things happen off the record here, uh, power and vulnerability have fraught encounters with one another. And Boaz, it says, is in this contented mood. He's had dinner. He's had plenty of glasses of wine. He falls asleep on the threshing floor. And Ruth wanders in and discovers that Boaz is there. And her mother-in-law, Naomi, has already told her to go and speak with Boaz. So she seizes this moment. And now you need to know, she's about to put herself into a a position of potential tremendous compromise. It's a very high stakes moment for Ruth. Maybe it's the most vulnerable moment in her life. And so what does she do? She uncovers Boaz's feet and lies down there. Now you should know, and I'll be delicate here, the Hebrew word for feet refers to appendages at the end of our legs, but it's also a euphemism for unmentionables. We'll leave it at that. So this story could take a couple of different directions here, and this is when I turn to Andy Crouch, his wisdom, which I think is spot on. He says this, he says, it seems very likely that as Ruth throws off his cloak, Boaz is startled and awakens, and here is this woman. What's going on here? You could see the ultimate proposition, a sexual invitation, but something far more amazing is happening. Ruth is uncovering Boaz as an invitation not to sexual availability, but to vulnerability. Boaz, do you feel what it's like to wake up and suddenly realize you are naked? That's how it feels to be me every day. Now, Boaz understands this entire encounter as a plea for help and solidarity, and his response seems to make it clear that nothing illicit transpires that night. Instead, he says, I will be your guardian redeemer. So in summary, and I'm leaving out a chapter you can go back and read, but ultimately, Boaz becomes Ruth and Naomi's redeemer, and he marries Ruth, and he buys back or redeems Elimelech's land, and so Naomi, too, will have a future. Naomi returns, and she's no longer Mara. Naomi is restored, and Elimelech's line is restored, and a new lineage of beautiful branches grows out of these very rough roots. And as Ruth and Boaz become the great-grandparents of David, who will become king, Obed to Jesse to David to Joseph to Jesus. And because of this one moment on the threshing floor, even this little town of Bethlehem will be redeemed. We probably wouldn't even be singing that song were it not for this risk of redemption that Ruth takes in this moment. You know, it's been said that, that redemption, sacrificially restoring what is lost, is how God saves the world and is how we serve the world. So as we conclude, here are two questions infused with the power to alter the trajectory of a life. One, have you truly embraced being saved by God's redemption? Two, have you truly embraced being a servant of God's redemption? Here's what I mean. On the first question, the plight of the human condition today might be put like this. You got to become something great. You got to make a name for yourself. You got to save yourself. You've got to redeem yourself. But don't miss this. Please don't miss this. 
the fundamental difference between Christianity and whatever else is on offer in the world today with respect to the trajectory of human life is you don't have to earn your freedom, identity, purpose, or belonging. God through Christ has already purchased these things. You're free, and the one who the Son sets free is free indeed. So if this is speaking to you this morning, make it your first real Christmas. Come to Jesus kicking and screaming or laughing and crying. But however you come, come with nothing and receive everything. For Christ is the great Redeemer, sacrificially restoring that which has been lost in your life. And on the second question, Christians all throughout history, all over the world, right here in the Bay Area, we are sent into places of bondage and our mission as servants of God's redemption is to act with agency to restore what has been lost. So for most of us in this room, that looks like Boaz. And for a handful of us, it looks like Ruth. And here's what I mean. Boaz, power, privilege, prestige, Ruth on the margin, but with the power to center others who are on the margins. So what does Ruth do? She speaks truth to power, but not with unfiltered rage, with savvy. She's shrewd. She's wise. She even has immense compassion for those who are in power. Because today, what can get in the way of speaking truth to power is contempt. It's someone saying, I want what you have. Life is a zero-sum game. I'll take it from you. But that wasn't Ruth's way. And what about Boaz? See, Boaz is truthful about his power. He recognizes his privilege and he leverages it to empower others. And what can get in the way of that today is sometimes deceit. We deny that we have power and privilege, or, or maybe another way of putting it, uh, we deny that it's usually been gifted to us. It's all about what we've earned. But this Advent season, let's go back to these life-altering questions, and I conclude here. Have you truly embraced being saved by God's redemption? Imagine your life waking up on a Monday morning, resting in God's rescue thankful for your redemption confident that come what may you belong you your identity is secure you're beloved as a precious adopted child of a heavenly father through christ and have you truly embraced being a servant of god's redemption imagine your life brimming with potential injected with purpose as a boaz intent upon leveraging power and privilege in creative imaginative generous and truly liberating ways or as a ruth imagine finding agency while on a margin a gender margin or an ethnic margin or a social margin or socioeconomic margin and leveraging that agency to center those on the margins to pull those on the margins to the center where they can be involved and loved and accepted. This is a kind of life that's truly worth living. Let's pray together. God, as we come to this table, um, we come uh, not as having it all together, but as desperately needing your help. Uh, Lord Jesus, what we share in common is this longing that we would know our full redemption, to know the depth of the sacrifice 
your loss that gave us such great gain. And God, would you at this table also empower us by the work of your spirit, by these elements here, uh, to be change agents in the lives of others, to live a life that is truly worth living, where we can uh, sow the, the seeds of your redemption and restoration in the lives of others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.